Hello, fellow saints, and welcome to Come Follow Me with Brother T. We are supposed to be covering for the Come Follow Me lessons 15 of the hardest chapters of the Book of Mormon. And after diving deeper and deeper into these Isaiah chapters, chapters 11 through 25 and 2 Nephi, I decided to really do my best to explain the history and the meaning of these chapters and verses. As such, I decided to break up these chapters into two parts so it wouldn't be an hour-long or more episode. In addition, if you want to get the most out of this podcast and out of these chapters, I suggest that you listen to the podcast with your scriptures open and go through it verse by verse and take your time to really digest and understand what Isaiah is trying to say and to appreciate his imagery and his poetry. Finally, I need to give credit where credit is due. Normally in my podcasts, I grab from the scriptures, I grab from institute student manuals and teacher's manuals, I take from the Come Follow Me lessons and from all sorts of resources on LDS.org. But for this one, I relied heavily upon Step by Step Through the Book of Mormon by Alan C. Minor. It's a great commentary that uses each verse to explain what's going on. And you can actually find that online at stepbystep.alancminor.com. Now let's jump into chapter 11. And now we're back to Nephi writing. If you remember, Jacob was writing the previous chapters, and he also quoted Isaiah. And in verse 2, Nephi admits to loving Isaiah, and he also admits to have seen the Christ. And he explains that Jacob has also seen the Christ in verse 3, which make both of them special witnesses or apostles and prophets. And this is also evident that by the mouth of three witnesses, you have Jacob, you have Nephi, and now you have Isaiah that they're quoting, testifying that Christ will come. And I love what Nephi says about the Savior in verse 4. He says, Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. For for this end hath the law of Moses been given, and all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. And that's a clue for understanding Isaiah is that this is all symbolic of Christ's plan. And Christ's plan, as we know, involves covenants. And that's why he says in verse 5, And also my soul delighteth in the covenants of the Lord, which he hath made to our fathers. Yea, my soul delighteth in his grace and in his justice and power and mercy in the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. Finally, in verses 6 and 7, he gives his testimony of the Savior. He says, My soul delighteth in proving unto my people that save Christ should come, all men must perish. For if there be no Christ, there be no God. And if there be no God, we are not. For there could have been no creation. But there is a God, and he is Christ, and he cometh in the fullness of his own time. And now we go back to Isaiah. And remember that Isaiah lived about a hundred years before Nephi, so his writings were better understood by Nephi. In fact, in chapter 25, he says as much. Of these chapters in the Book of Mormon, President Packer said this, Most readers readily understand the narrative of the Book of Mormon. Then, just as you settle in to move comfortably along, you will meet a barrier. Interspersed in the narrative are chapters reciting the prophecies of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. They loom as a barrier, like a roadblock or a checkpoint, beyond which the casual reader, one with idle curiosity, generally will not go. You too may be tempted to stop there, but do not do it. Do not stop reading. Move forward through those difficult-to-understand chapters of the Old Testament prophecy, even if you understand very little of it. Move on. If all you do is skim and merely glean an impression here and there, move on if all you do is look at the words. 
And with that bit of advice, let's jump into chapter 12 of 2 Nephi, or Isaiah chapter 2. Remember to look for dualism, which is that the writings written about can represent more than one thing. And Isaiah can write about ancient times while also referring to our time. In chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, we're talking about establishing church in Utah. And Legrand Richard says, Isaiah saw the mountain of the Lord's house established in the top of mountains in the latter days. How literally that has been fulfilled. In my way of thinking, in this very house of the God of Jacob right here on this block, this temple, more than any other building of which we have record, has brought people from every land to learn of his ways and walk in his paths. However, in dualistic form, this mountain of the Lord is not just talking about the Salt Lake Temple, but all of the temples. Bruce R. McConkie said, All of the holy temples of our God in the latter days shall be built in the mountains of the Lord. For his mountains, whether the land itself is a hill, a valley, or a plain, are the places where he comes personally and by the power of the Spirit to commune with his people. In addition, in verse 3, it talks about walking in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And this is what Joseph Fielding Smith said about that. He said, these two cities, one in the land of Zion and one in Palestine, are to become capitals for the kingdom of God during the millennium. Verse 4 is all about the millennium, and Dallin H. Oaks said, Many take comfort from the Old Testament prophecy that nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. But this prophecy only applies to that time of peace, which follows the time when the God of Jacob will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For now we have wars and conflicts, and everywhere they are rooted in violations of the commandments of God. Verse 6 has reference to the kingdom of Judah not relying on the Lord, but their allies, and not listening to the prophets, but to soothsayers. In other words, they are acting like the Philistines, or the people who are not the covenant people of God who live in that region, and who worship idols and false gods. Verses 7 through 12 bring up one of the major themes of the Book of Mormon and Isaiah, which is that pride will destroy you. And when you read verse 9, know that the mean man is talking about the ordinary man, and not someone who is angry or not very nice to people. The mean man boweth not. So even the ordinary man is not humble. This is what President Eyring said about verse 12. This is describing a day when the Savior will come, a day we all look for and want our students to prepare for. This scripture says that in that day, all of us who thought we were special and wonderful will seem smaller and the Lord will be exalted. We will see better who he is, how much we love him, and how humble we should be. I understood why Isaiah told me it would be helpful to foresee the day when the Lord would be exalted and to know how much I depend upon him. We need him, and the faith we have in him makes us see him as great and exalted and ourselves as small and dependent. Verse 13 talks about the cedars of Lebanon, and these were huge trees and a thick forest. Solomon's temple was made out of these cedars. And if you know anything about cedar, it's aromatic and it's a natural bug repellent. Now, the oaks of Bashan are the same. They are huge. They're very good for building. And they both represent what is good about Israel and how their blessings lead to loftiness or pride. Verses 14 through 7 talks more about loftiness and pride. And the things that they're included in this description are the ships of Tarshish, which were tall Phoenician merchant ships. Now, there could also be a city in the Iberian Peninsula named Tarshish. But either way, these were the best at moving goods across the Mediterranean. They were tall and proud. 
In verses 18 through 22, it explains how the proud and their idols, or the things that they worship instead of God, will be brought low. And now we move into chapter 13, or Isaiah chapter 3. And one of the specific things this chapter may represent happened in 70 AD when the Jews rebelled against the Romans, and there was such a severe famine that Josephus writes that the number who died of starvation was prodigious. He writes about how they were eating the leather off of their shoes and were so weak that when the Romans came in, they killed them easily. This is considered one of the abominations of desolation. Notice in verse 1 how the whole staff of bread and stay of water represent famine and drought. And interestingly enough, the two words staff and stay are masculine and feminine respectively, which indicates how complete the destruction of Judah was, or in Isaiah's case, will be. In verses 1 through 3, it explains how the true leadership will disappear. And this happened to the Jews, this happened to Ephraim, and it's going to happen to us today, or it's happening to us today. And this also represents the conquering of Babylon when the rulers and judges were either killed or taken captive. And because of that, young people were put into rule over the Jews. And of course, this was contrary to Jewish tradition and culture. This also could be in reference to how in modern days, youth disrespect their elders and seek to rule over them, which is what we see in verse 5. In verses 5 through 7, we read, And the people shall be oppressed, everyone by another, and everyone by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient and the base against the honorable. When a man shall take hold of his brother of the house of his father and shall say, Thou hast clothing, be thou our ruler, and let not this ruin come under thy hand. In that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be the healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of the people. This happened in 70 AD to the Jews, but it's not hard to see that happening in the not-too-distant future when the government will collapse and people will seek to find food and shelter from anyone they think that they can trust. This is also a sign that the people will not take personal responsibility. So Think about that today. Verse 8, it talks about how Jerusalem is ruined and Judah has fallen because their tongues and their doings have been against the Lord to provoke the eyes of the Lord. And this is dualism. This verse ties in all of the times that Jerusalem is destroyed as well as other times where the Jews were conquered and why. Verse 9 talks about the sin of Sodom, and that is sexual deviance, which has been the downfall of many civilizations. And we are headed down that same path today. Verses 10 and 11 talks about how we reap what we sow. Verse 12 talks about children and women ruling over them. And this is not a slight against women or against children, but it's talking about the breakdown of the families where fathers are no longer in the home and that they're not needed and then the consequences that have resulted from that. And that happened in the Jewish time and it's happening to us today. Verses 13 through 15, the Lord tries to help, but look at the response. He can't do it because the leaders have beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor, saith the Lord God of hosts. In other words, the rulers have plunged the country so far into debt that the people have no more money to be taxed. Okay, does that sound familiar today? Verses 17 through 24, typically in societies, men drive the destructive culture. And when women start to take a prominent role in this, society is really ripe for destruction. And this is where Isaiah talks about the daughters of Zion, which represent pride and debauchery or the loosening of morals. He says in verse 16 that they, they walk with stretched forth necks and haughtiness and scorn for others who are not so well off. 
In verse 17, he talks about discovering their secret parts. And this is not symbolic of pornography and promiscuity. And then he uses a lot of jewelry and accessories to show how prideful and how worldly they are. And I think we can all agree that we are seeing more and more of this today. And just for fun, I want to go over the meaning of each of these words because they're not words that we would use very commonly, but they were used frequently in the King James Version. So a muffler is a veil or something that covers up the face. And a bonnet is a headdress or something worn on the head. Tablets represent perfume bottles. Earrings, the charms or amulets. Nose jewels, nose rings, pretty understandable. Changeable suits of apparel. Clothing for festivals only. A mantle is an overcloak. Uh, wimples is a type of shawl or veil worn over the head. And crisping pins, you'll sometimes hear it erroneously rendered as a hair curling implement. Uh, the Hebrews suggest it's like a bag, uh, like a modern purse or handbag. And then glasses, most authorities translate it as a metal mirror, although some suggest transparent clothing. And then there's hoods or turbans, head coverings wrapped by the head. In verse 24, the consequences of their wickedness is a stink from death. The words in this also represent slavery and sickness. For example, rent is a rope for binding slaves. Baldness is another sign of slavery, but also of disease. And sackcloth is mourning and branding is another sign of slavery. So you think about the sex trafficking that's going on today. That was going on in ancient times as well. This is a natural consequence of the sexual deviance that has destroyed so many societies. Finally, in verse 25, the men shall fall by the sword and they're mighty in the war. In other words, the men will all be destroyed. Now, in chapter 14, or Isaiah chapter 4, according to the Joseph Smith translation, this verse, verse 1, should actually be with chapter 13. And it is one of the consequences of men being destroyed in battle. And these conditions are contrary to the Lord's law of marriage and a stigma to the Jews at this time. The rest of this chapter describes the condition of the saints during the millennium. Verse 2 talks about a branch that represents the Lord or righteous people. And the escaped are the ones who are not condemned with the wicked because they repented and are living righteously. Verses 3 through 4, Zion will be formed in Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem by the sanctified or cleansed or righteous. Verse 5 talks about a cloud of smoke and flaming fire, which represents the Lord in reference to him leading the Israelites across the wilderness in Moses' time. In verse 6, we read about a tabernacle or canopy, which symbolizes marriage. And the church is the bride and the groom is Christ, and he will provide shelter. This also could be in reference to stakes as a symbolic meaning of a pavilion or covering before the millennium. In chapter 15 or Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, this is the parable of the vineyard. And Isaiah is composing a poem about Christ who planted a vineyard, which represents the children of Israel in a very fruitful hill, which represents the promised land. And he sets up a border to protect it. And he builds a tower, which represents prophets. And he plants the best vine, or he makes covenants with the children of Israel. And he set up a wine press, and he's expecting good fruit, or that his people would be righteous. But the fruit is wild, or the people are wicked. And he asks himself in verse 4, what else could I have done? And in verse 5, the Lord removes his protection. Remember that the promised land is protected based upon righteousness. In verse 6, he says he's not going to prune or dig anymore, which means that there will be no more prophets and that the Spirit will not be there. 
And instead, there will be briars and thorns. In other words, there will be false doctrine. There's also going to be no rain or no revelation. In verse 7, he looked to reap what he sowed, but he only got wickedness. And then in verses 8 through 25, you have the six woes of wickedness. And in verse 8, we read the first woe. And it reads, Woe unto them that join house to house, till there can be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. And this is a little confusing, but it's about income inequality and issues due to unfair alliances or monopoly and secret combinations, where they buy up everything and they control everything so that nobody else can have a piece of the pie. In verse 9, we learn that these people will lose absolutely everything. And one of the ways that they will lose everything is explained in verse 10, that even though their field sizes are large, the yield and the value of that yield will be very low. In verses 11 through 12, we get the second woe, and it's woe unto the partiers. Verse 13 reads, Therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. And this captivity is sin, and they are starved of the word of God. Verse 14, it talks about hell, and hell's going to need to be a lot bigger to handle all of the wicked. Verse 15, it's the mean, which remember the common man, the mighty man, and the proud man will all be humbled. In other words, everyone will be compelled to be humble, because in verse 16, the Lord will triumph. In verse 17, the destruction of the once amazing estates will be complete as evidenced by sheep grazing there. In addition, foreigners will take over whatever's left. In verse 18, we get the third woe, and this is that the wicked are tied to their sins. And verse 19 explains why. It's because these people who are tied to their sins are basically saying that they will not believe the prophets until there's enough evidence. So essentially, until the destruction comes, they're not going to believe it. In verse 20, we have the fourth woe. And are we not seeing this profoundly today? This is one of the best scriptures in all of Isaiah, in my opinion, in describing what's going on in our world today. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 22 is the sixth woe, and it's for leaders who live in riotous living at the expense of the people. 23 continues, these are the people who take bribes and punish the righteous while excusing the wicked. It says in verse 24 that their punishment is a loss of the true meaningfulness of their lives, and that 25 they will be violently destroyed. But the Lord is still reaching out for them. He will still forgive them. In verses 23 through 27, Legrand Richards said, In fixing the time of the great gathering, Isaiah seemed to indicate that it would take place in the day of the railroad train and the airplane. Since there were neither trains nor planes in that day, Isaiah could hardly have mentioned them by name. However, he seems to have described them in unmistakable words. How better could their horses' hooves be counted like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind than in the modern train? How better could their roaring be like a lion than in the roar of an airplane? Trains and airplanes do not stop for night. Therefore, was not Isaiah justified in saying, None shall slumber nor sleep, neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. With this manner of transportation, the Lord can really hiss unto them from the end of the earth, that they shall come with speed swiftly. Indicating that Isaiah must have foreseen the airplane, he stated, Who are these that fly as a cloud, and as the doves to their windows? Verse 28 is about hunting converts, and verse 29, the young lions are the missionaries 
who will be successful, and the enemy cannot stop the work. Finally, in verse 30, the world will constantly fight the missionary effort, but the work will be successful. Chapter 16, or Isaiah 6, is Isaiah's dream where he receives his call, and it's also a metaphor for the Lord calling Israel to step up, repent, and lead. Verse 1 starts off in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, Uzziah was the 10th king in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he began to rule at age 16 when his father, Amaziah, was killed by conspirators in about 767 BC. And Uzziah sought for and followed the counsel of the prophet Zechariah. And while he followed the ways of righteousness, the Lord prospered him. He led the kingdom of Judah in several successful military campaigns against local enemies, and he strengthened the walls of Jerusalem. He supported agriculture. He raised the kingdom of Judah to a condition of prosperity that it had not known since the death of Solomon. Toward the end of his life, as an unauthorized servant of the Lord, Uzziah tried to offer incense on the altar in the temple. And at that time, he was struck with leprosy, and that leprosy stayed with him until his death in about 742 BC. So this is happening at about 742 BC, and Isaiah sees the Lord in the temple on a throne in this vision. And in verse 2, it says he sees a seraphim above the throne. Now, seraphim are symbolic angels, and their wings represent power to act. And in this vision, the seraphim have six wings, and six is the number of man, so They may have power to serve man. It says with twain, which means two, he covers his face, and with two wings he covers his feet, and with two wings he uses to fly. Now, I don't know why he covered his face and feet, but the face has eyes, nose, mouth, and ears, which are where we gain our senses and how we communicate, and feet are what we use to move or to get work done. So perhaps in this, the seraphim are holding back because they're passing the job to take care of man over to Isaiah. Also, according to McConkie, seraph means to burn. So it is possible that it is all symbolic of cleansing as well. In verse 3, he says, holy, holy, holy. Now, three is the number of completion or the most or the best. So the seraphim are honoring the Lord the best that they can. And in verse 4, it says, the temple shook when the Lord spoke. And that the house was full of smoke. Now, smoke or incense is symbolic of the presence of the Lord. And that goes back to Moses leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, that the Lord led them as a pillar of fire or smoke by day. In verse 5, Isaiah expresses how he feels inadequate. And this is not an uncommon feeling, I would assume, for prophets and apostles. In fact, we know that Enoch and Moses, two of the greatest prophets that ever walked the face of the earth, felt inadequate and had to be consoled by the Lord to know that they could do what they were called on to do. In verses 6 through 7, he's cleansed by having a live coal put on his tongue by the seraphim. And it came from the altar, so it also represents the atonement. In other words, Isaiah is having his sins forgiven him. In verse 8, Isaiah is called and responds, and I love this response. Verse 8 says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And then in verse 9, he's told to go and call the people to repentance, but he's also warned that they are going to ignore him. And verse 10 actually seems a bit contradictory, but Isaiah isn't going to be doing these things. He's just pointing it out this is what's going to happen. Verse 10 reads, Make the heart of this people fat. And fat means that insensitive to the Spirit. He goes on and says, and make their ears 
heavy, meaning that they're not going to listen to the word of the Lord and shut their eyes, which if you shut your eyes, you're rejecting light or you're rejecting truth, lest they be destroyed. They have to repent or they will be destroyed. They have to be accountable. The other thing kind of notable in verse 10 is that this is a chiastic verse, meaning that it's mirrored. It talks about make the heart of the people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes. So it goes heart, then ears, then eyes. And then the second part of that is lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. So it mirrors itself. And that is a very common poetic tool back in Isaiah's time and also in Hebrew writings in general. In verses 11 through 12, we're told that the message will be shared, as indeed we are sharing it today, until the wicked are condemned and punished, as has been discussed. Verse 13 reads, But yet there shall be a tenth, and they shall return and shall be eaten, as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. And this has reference to the people of Lehi, who are a remnant, or in this case, a tenth. And their very existence and now conversion serves as evidence, or in this scripture, food, for those seeking truth about the Book of Mormon. And they are returning despite their previous apostasy. And with that, brothers and sisters, I think this is a good natural breaking place in these chapters for Come Follow Me. And then we'll start back up in chapter 17, or Isaiah chapter 7, and go to chapter 25 of 2 Nephi in our next podcast. But I want to bear my testimony that Isaiah's writings are applicable to us today. The testament of their truthfulness is that they have been fulfilled in one way or another previously for both the kingdom of Ephraim and the kingdom of Judah. And they will happen again in our days or have happened or will continue to happen. That's the nature of Isaiah. And as I said in the beginning, all things are a type and a shadow of the Savior Jesus Christ. And I bear my testimony that Christ is our Savior and that Isaiah prophesies of our Savior constantly. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to reach me at drjaredthomas at gmail.com or send me a text at 916-412-2136. Thanks and have a blessed day.